It's a new year, which means it's a new sermon series. We're going to begin uh, the sermon series this morning looking at the patriarchs. About four and a half years ago, we did a sermon series that looked at the beginning chapters of Genesis as the foundations for our understanding of what it means to live in the world that God had created it. And this year, I want to ask the question, what does it mean to be God's people? What does it mean to take on that identity and to help us understand that, to go back to the original people that God called and invited into a relationship with him? To do that, especially this year, we haven't mentioned it yet, but a significant year for our congregation. It was in the fall of 1949, 75 years ago, when this church was started. As we start to think about what does it mean to be shaped and what the visions for the people that planted this church were, how do we now live out that vision? So we will be looking this morning at Genesis chapter 12, the first nine verses. It's on page 10 of your pew Bibles, or the text will be on the screen behind me where you can follow along. From the 12th chapter of Genesis, the first nine verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring... I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If it's not your own story, I'm pretty certain that almost every single one of us has a part of our stories of the past, our family story, that moment where someone looked at the life that they were living in a faraway place they thought about where their future was going or wasn't going, and they decided to go on a huge journey to pack everything up and immigrate to these United States. I've often thought about those stories and, and tried to put myself in their shoes. 
to imagine for myself how hard would life have to get before I decided that the best alternative was to either pack up or sell everything that I owned, collect the funds, and then relocate from everything that I am familiar with, my family, my culture, my uh, language, and move to a whole nother place. Another place that I wasn't as familiar with. Another place where I didn't know the culture or the language. Another place where I would still be impoverished, but have a dream. And I wonder often, were those people more often fleeing from what was so bad at their original place? Or were they fleeing to a vision, a hope of what could be better in the future? And in envisioning that, I wonder again, would I ever be that brave? Would I be able to take that kind of an adventure, that kind of step in life? All of which is to say that when you think about those stories that come from all of our past, either because of fleeing something bad or hoping for something better in the future, you do have to admire the adventuresome spirit, the, the courage of those that for our sake and our benefit made that great journey to try something different. Well, of course, I, I couldn't help but think about those stories again when reading the introduction to this person and the call of Abram for our text today. Through this series, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at his life but this morning, especially to understand this initial call, we kind of have to back up and put it in the broader context of what's been taking place so far in God's word, the beginning of his revelation. And, and Genesis is where it all begins. Genesis is the story of the beginning of all things. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created everything simply by the power of his word. He spoke all life, all physical elements, everything, the heavens and the earth into existence. And everything he created was good. As the crown of his creation, he created human beings. Human beings to live on this planet that he made to cultivate it, to develop it, to live in relation with him and with one another. And again, everything that he made was very good. But in chapter 3, we find out that Adam and Eve, those first humans, decided that they wanted to do things their own way. They bought into the lie of the deceiver that suggested that God was withholding something from them, preventing them from becoming the, the creatures they could become otherwise. And in hearing that deception, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in eating they knew both good but now evil. They rebelled against God, and as a result, he drove them from his presence in the garden. And since that time, all that you see in the book of Genesis is a growing distance between God and these human creatures that kept insisting on doing things their own way. One of the children of Adam and Eve, Cain, kills his brother Abel in an act of jealousy. And then by the time you get to just the sixth chapter, we find out that 
every intention of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man in the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. What an indictment against the sin of humanity. And so God, in essence, starts over with his creation. He spares the righteous Noah and his family, destroying all other life on earth in a great flood. But once the flood is over, with that start once again, he gives the command to go and fill the earth and subdue it to be fruitful and multiply. But then we learn in chapter 11 that humans instead decide together to come. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower to its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And in this tower desire, this building of this city, this tower of Babel, the heart of the human was, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to settle here. Instead of going forth, we're going to meet God on our own terms and do life our way. And in that desire, again, God confuses the language of all of them at that city, causing them to be forced to disperse and spread out throughout the land. And this is where chapter 11 ends and chapter 12 begins. This relatively new project of human existence has already been drifting further and further from the God that had created them. They were making a bigger and bigger mess of the world that God had given them. And despite already dramatically starting over, these scattered people, they're not looking for God. They're trying to do life in their own ways and in their own commandments, and they are failing to be the people that God had created them to be. And so in their failure and into that situation, God acts. Of all of these different, now newly formed language groups and people types, God calls and chooses just one through whom he will do his work. And it's not because this one was any better or more worthy or more righteous than anyone else. As far as we can tell, it looks like Abram and his father Terah were like everyone else, living in the land of Ur, likely worshiping idols and doing life their own way. There really isn't much of an introduction to Abraham. We, Abram, we, we jump right into his story at the beginning of chapter 12. But right away, in verses 2 and 3, God speaks to Abram. And in that speaking, he gives Abram some incredible promises, depending on how you count them, at least seven. God promises to make a great nation of Abram, to bless him, to make his name great, so that he will be a blessing, that God will bless those who bless him and curse those that dishonor him, so that all the families on the earth, all those scattered clans, would be blessed through him. Promise after promise, blessing after blessing, blessings that are personal to Abraham and his family, his uh, reputation and his future, and blessings that are going to be global, affecting all of humanity. 
And when looking at that passage in the context, you can't help but see the parallel in the promises that God gives to Abram and the desire of the human heart at the Tower of Babel. There they said, we want to make a name for ourselves. God laughed at that desire. And here God says to Abram, I will make your name great. There they wanted to settle into a land, and here Abram is told, I will give you a land that you will settle in. God is going to be looking, doing the work. The other scattered nations, they're going to have to invent a God. They're going to have to search for him and create false images to worship, but Abram would know God. The other scattered nations would have to invent a purpose, a meaning for the days that they are giving for their very lives. But Abram is told through his relationship with God, he will have a meaningful existence where he is blessed and where he is blessing others. What a gift. But as wonderfully exciting as these promises are to hear, we have to immediately recognize that there are several issues that are going to be problematic in the pursuit of those promises. First of all, those promises are not just made to Abram as, as just promises he can receive. They are promises that are given along with a command, a very difficult command. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. In order to pursue and receive these promises of God, Abram would have to walk away from all that was comfortable to him. And again, we hear those words, but I want to pause and just think about what those words, what those actions would mean, especially back in that day. Your land was everything about who you were. Your name, your, your identity itself was wrapped up in the, the land that you cultivated, the name that you inherited from your father and your, your ancestors that you would hope to develop and cultivate and pass on as a blessing to those who came after you. And Abraham is told that he needs to walk away from all of that. All of what was comfortable, all of what was known, all that he had invested in and was receiving, that is to be put behind and he is to walk away from that. A very difficult call. Which only gets heightened because of the other part of that, which is to go from the country to the land that I will show you. Which again, wonderful, but very sparse on the details there what land is this is it 20 miles down the road or 2,000 miles in the distance and what's there is it a good land that's developing that's fruitful or is it a difficult land what is waiting for me in this land and even part of that difficulty, we find out in our text, verse 6 of chapter 12, that at this time the Canaanites lived in this land. So this already is an occupied land. And as we will see, that's going to become problematic for the descendants of Abraham. That leads to another complication. A lot of these promises are clearly ones that are beyond the person of Abram and benefit not him, but his descendants, which is great. 
except for one major issue. Back in chapter 11, we get a very brief introduction to Abram, his family, his father, Terah, his brother. And, and what we find out is that he has a wife, a wife named Sarai. But the only thing that we learn about her is that Sarai was barren. She had no children. We also learn in verse 4 of chapter 12 that Abram is already now 75 years old at this point. So if you're going to have these promises of becoming a great nation and having a blessing to pass on to your descendants, that's a wonderful thing to celebrate as a promise. But there is no descendants as of yet. And the prospect of descendants coming at 75 are not looking very good. This is creating all kinds of problems. But in recognizing these problems, we are also recognizing an important truth. That if any of this is going to happen, it's God that is going to have to do it. God will have to lead Abram to where to go. God is going to have to give the land to Abram and his descendants, despite it being occupied. God is going to have to give the descendants that Abram will be able to pass these promises on to. Yes, Abram is called to obey and to go. But all of the success of this journey is not dependent on him. It is dependent on God. And in essence, just like the flood, or at least similar to it, God is starting over. He's choosing one person that he is going to work through. And rather than them figuring out life on their own, God says, I will work with you and bless you and guide you in a way that nobody else will be guided, directed, and blessed. But in many ways, this isn't a call to pursue the promises. This is a call to trust. It's the call of faith. A call to believe that as hard as it would be to walk away from everything that was familiar and known and to pursue the unknown, it's to believe and trust that the God that stands behind those promises will be faithful and that indeed what lies behind those promises is a better, more blessed life. And Abram takes the step of faith. The move from command in verse 1 to the promises of verses 2 and 3, quickly into the report of verse 4 that says, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, suggests that in hearing this call, Abram is both quick and complete in his obedience. At 75 years old, he and his fellow relatives and his possessions all are packed up, and he moves out. Where was he going? This map that you cannot see <laughs> helps to explain. But I know it's hard to see, but it gives a little bit of context. In the very lower right of the map here is the land of Ur. That was the original land, or at least where most scholars think it was in the bottom south here. To go from Ur all the way up to Haran, Terah, the father of Abram and his family had to travel, obviously, several hundred miles. And then from Haran, 
Abram packs up and goes down into the land of Canaan. Again, another several hundred mile journey, not with any guidance or direction except for the word of God. And when Abram gets to Shechem, he goes to this oak of Morah, and he once again has God visit him and reveal the fact that this indeed is the land that will be given to his as of yet non-existent descendants. From there, he camps again between the cities of Bethel and Ai. And once again, just as he had done in Shechem, he builds an altar there. And those two altars are suggestive of the fact that this land is a place where God is claiming. Where God will be known, where God will be worshipped, where God will dwell with the descendants of Abraham as their God and they as his people. This is a story of God taking the initiative to do something new, to intervene where humans had continually failed and to make promises to one of these humans. And this part of the story is a story of that human, Abram, believing in God and trusting his promises and moving forward in faith, doing a difficult things in pursuit of obedience Trusting that God would follow through. Now, a bit of a spoiler, but not much for those that most of us knowing the rest of the story. The first thing that we will learn and find out as we journey through this with Abram is the fact that indeed God will be faithful to his promises. As much as this is dependent upon the fact that God must be the one acting, we will find out that God will. God doesn't make his promises lightly. He will follow through on everything he told about to Abram. But we will also find out that the parallel of Abram, even though in this text he is faithful, will often fall into that pattern of humanity where he would rather trust himself and his way than God and his direction. We will find that the old pattern of humanity will creep up and he will try to move forward in his own power and strength. And when he does, we will realize that things do not go well. Which is what always happens and which leads us to the main message I want us to be hearing from this text this morning. This is the start of a new year. As already had been alluded to, as we talked about last week, and I'm sure as many of you have been thinking about over the last couple of weeks, as we start this new year, many of us take this as an opportunity to refocus our lives, to think about plans and ideas and visions of what we want to do in this coming year, the people that we want to become, the things that we want to improve in our lives, and a new focus on goals and dreams that we have for the future, not only for ourselves, but a part of the communities in which we live. But in that, there will also be that forever human tendency to try to develop and pursue those dreams in our own strength. To try in our own power to make our names great and to do what we want to do and accomplish. And humans have been trying to do that for as long as history has been recorded. 
And when we do try to do things in our own power, in our own will, in our own strength, what we find is over and over again, we fail, things end up blowing up and getting worse. And in that, God could just step back, shake his head, and destroy us and say, what an awful human being that we are to rebel against the God that he is. But in his grace and mercy, that's not what he does. In his grace, he has come. He has revealed himself to us in his word, and as we just celebrated in Christmas more fully through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. We humans will always fall short and get things wrong. That's why we needed Christ to come, to offer himself as a sacrifice so that our sins could be forgiven and the broken relationship that we broke between us and God could be mended and repaired and that we could receive the blessings of a meaningful and purposeful life and a blessing of a life to come in eternity in glory with the Lord. But with those great promises always comes challenges. There will be many times in this coming year where we will look at what we want for our lives, improved finances, a better body, a better health, a, a, a better person that's admired and praised where we are known well. And the path forward to that seems clear to us. But it's a path that God says is closed to us if we're going to be his people. And instead of pursuing things in our strength, what we want, our desires, our dreams, the call is to surrender and to say, Lord, you're the one who has given me these promises. If I try to pursue them in my own strength, I know I will fail, and so I want to follow you, where you lead, where you guide. And in following him, there are going to be times where we have to walk away from things that are very precious to us. And it will be hard to give money. It will be hard to give up pleasures. It will be hard to sacrifice certain things. But what we are walking toward and the one that we are following is faithful. And so we make those minor sacrifices with the trust and belief that the God that stands behind the great promises of a better, more blessed life and future blessings to come is a God who is faithful. And so those minor sacrifices are nothing to the glory that we want to give to him as we live for him, as he calls us and guides us. And that's my hope for us as we start walking through this sermon series and we look at the patriarchs. If you are here this morning, by definition, God is calling you. The Lord is inviting you into a deeper walk with him. He has blessings in store for you. And for most of us, that doesn't mean that we have to pack up all of our belongings and become foreign missionaries, but it will mean at least minor sacrifices. And my hope and my prayer is that we start the sermon series as we begin this new year, that the desire of our heart as the people of God are followers on a journey, that wherever God is leading, we let nothing stand in its way so that we can pursue his blessings for our lives, not for our glory, but for the glory of the one who gave up everything for us.
And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. So let's bow our heads. Lord God and Heavenly Father, the books of history, and including your word especially, and the evidence of our very eyes suggest that when we try to pursue greatness in our own strength and desire, we fail. But Lord, we thank you that you don't just walk away from us and leave us in our failure, but through your grace, you continue to call you continue to love. You continue to pursue. Lord, in your word and through your son, you have given to us so many wonderful promises. We thank you for those blessings and we ask your forgiveness when we've neglected or walked away from those promises, when we've continued to choose our desires, our hopes over yours. But I pray that once again in this coming year, we would surrender, that we would say that wherever you lead, we will follow. That when you call to go, for us to give, for us to stop, that our hearts would respond always with obedience. Lord, we want to serve you because we can trust in your faithful promises. This we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.